0: What draws you to a story? In many ways, a mystery is much like the enticing light of an anglerfish. It draws you in until you're swallowed whole. Whether it's ufology in general or a specific case, it can be hard to unmoor yourself from a particular topic once you find yourself sloshing around in its belly searching for clues while maintaining your balance as best you can. In these instances, we are not Jonah, but the fish. It's that very idea that has me struggling, because today's episode, while certainly a mystery, is not a UFO story. There are no UFOs in it at all. In fact, if someone were to suggest that UFOs played a part in it, I would laugh first and punch second. This is not that kind of story. 2017 was the year that I started to listen to podcasts again. And it was also the year I stumbled upon one of my all-time favorite podcasts. The first episode I ever listened to was titled, What If You Never Came Home? Uh, What's up, Spencer? How are you? I'm good, man. Good. Reading this crazy-ass story all day. Oh, boy. Trying to track down newspaper articles from the 70s. Spencer and I, are we've been a little like... uh, like that classic style of movie scene where you got like the newspaper clippings on the walls with the yarn and the dude. This only a matter of time before that is our studio. <laughs> Maybe we should create a wall like that just to convince people that we're crazier than we really are. Just so are. that my wife has me committed well, next time she walks in here. Well, well, <laughs> if she hasn't already, bro, I <laughs> yeah, think you're a good. Point. You're probably good. Um, but we have been uh, Spencer and I have been down the K-hole uh, the rabbit hole of of a very interesting story uh, today we're asking the question what if you never came home? yeah a story that never had traction before became an internet mystery overnight this is the story of five men who went to a basketball game and died mysteriously on a mountain nobody knows why they went up there nobody knows how they got up there but they were there And if you look back now, you can see a set of jagged teeth closing in a fading light. My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is a very different episode of the Our Strange Skies podcast. Five grown men, all strong athletes, all friendly and all friends, all with strong attachments to home and family, and all well-known in the community, have vanished without a trace. Opens an extensive article written by Ken Payton on March 19, 1978, in the Sacramento Bee. For this episode, I wanted to approach the Yuba County 5 case a little differently. Through the aid of newspapers.com, I was able to track down the original reporting the Sacramento Bee had done concerning this case. Timothy Weir left his house without a coat. Despite his grandmother's insistence, he said he wouldn't need a coat. Not tonight. Weir, along with his four friends, teammates, were heading to the town of Chico to see their favorite team, UC Davis, destroy the competition and destroy they did. Weir was mentally disabled to a certain extent. They all were to a certain extent, and their families called them the boys. They weren't really boys, however. They were grown men. But Weir, who was 32, had a beer belly and curly brown hair. He loved people, and he loved to make friends. There was a childlike wonder about him because he loved to question everything like why cars needed to stop at stop signs. In an article written by Benji Eggle of the Sacramento Bee, Weir's brother, Dallas, claimed that one night, when his parents' house caught fire, Tim looked up and watched his bedroom ceiling burn. Dallas tried to pull his brother out of bed, but he told him not to bother him. He had work in the morning. Sometimes Tim would wander into his brother's room at night, Waking him up to ask questions like, "How come Mickey Mano can hit the ball farther than me?" Tim would often call up his friend Bill Sterling and read him portions of the newspaper or would recite funny names from the phone book. Bill was a very religious person and spent a portion of his time reading scripture to mentally impaired patients in the hospital. He also spent a lot of his time in the library doing research about people with mental disorders. He worked for a time at Beale Air Force Base as a dishwasher until his mother made him quit. She blamed the airmen on base for getting her son drunk and taking his money. Sterling spent a lot of time as a kid at the Napa Insane Asylum, now known as the Napa State Hospital. Bill Sterling went to the game that night with $15 in his pocket from his weekly allowance and a handful of maps of California. Tim and Bill met through Gateway Projects, an organization that provided special services for adults with special needs, and it was there that they met Jackie Hewitt and Jack Madruga. Jackie and Tim were practically inseparable. Jackie Hewitt's mother described them as a delight, as someone who was intensely happy. He was considered the most handicapped of them all, He had a slight droop in his head and was often slow to respond, but he loved to play with his beagle named Bo and rode around his parents' property on a 90cc Honda. Jackie hated to talk on the phone, and when he needed to, it was Tim Weir who would dial the number for him. According to his parents, he couldn't read or write and hated to be away from home for long periods of time. Tim was very protective of Jackie and looked at him as a brother Jack Madruga, who went by the nickname Doc served in the army as a truck driver for two years from 1966 to 68 he was described as slow but was a good student in high school he could manage his finances and was able to drive Jack owned a 1969 turquoise and white Mercury Montego and he never let anyone else drive it the fifth boy stands out for a lot of reasons, and is the most infamous member of this group. Most of what we know of his past is recent, thanks to the work of journalist Benji Hagel. Gary Mathias wore thick glasses that brought an intensity to his hazel eyes. He was one of the youngest members of the group, just 25, and had served in the military before receiving a medical discharge. He was the singer of a local band for a while and played football in high school. It was during high school where things started to change. Gary was placed in a psychiatric ward as a sophomore following a bad acid trip. After his time there, he became a habitual drug user throughout the remainder of his schooling and during his army service in the 70s, where he also became an expert marksman. He was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia during this period, too. After going AWOL and being locked up in February of 1973, there was an incident involving two MPs. Gary requested they come to his cell, and when they opened it, strolled out, naked, spit on the MPs, punched one in the face and attempted to assault the second guard before being subdued. Matthias wanted out and was given a medical discharge soon after. Later that month after coming home, Gary was at his cousin's house watching TV while the cousin's wife slept in a bedroom, groggy, because of medication she was taking at the time. Gary excused himself to go to the bathroom. When he hadn't returned for a while, the cousin went looking and found him on top of his wife, Groping her breasts while she lay there motionless in her underwear. The cousin asked Gary what he was doing, and he said that he wanted to kiss the woman. The cousin threatened to call 911, and according to police records, Gary responded, Good, I want to go back to jail. That month, he pled guilty to battery of a peace officer and a second charge of assault with the intent to rape, which was dropped as part of a plea deal. Gary Mathias only spent eight months in jail. In December of that year, he was picked up for smoking meth and dropping bennies. The drugs had turned him violent. At a dealer's house, he threatened to stab the dealer's girlfriend in the jaw and threatened a three-year-old child, stating, I thought I'd killed you once. I guess I'll have to do it again. The couple kicked Gary out of the house. He proceeded to pound on the door until police arrived Strangely, he doesn't appear to have served time for this incident. Further adding to his rap sheet, he was picked up on suspicion of Grand Theft Auto, disturbing the peace and driving without a license. There were a number of bar fights, and at one point, he was accused of prowling around a cemetery at night. He was finally sent to a state mental hospital after being picked up in Stockton in 1974. Gary tried college, but ultimately dropped out and took off for his grandparents' house in Oregon. His parents pleaded for him to come home. When he finally did, he walked the entire way from Oregon back to California. There was one final incident that occurred in 1975. Gary broke into the residence of a Yuba County couple. They awoke in a fright startled to find the young man standing near their bed. He had punched through a window and unlocked the front door. The couple claimed that he was looking for a ring to return to Satan, that he was their landlord looking for rent. After these incidents, Gary was prescribed medication for his schizophrenia and went to work for his stepfather in his gardening business. By the time the boys went missing... Gary hadn't had an incident in over two years. The five had formed a Special Olympics basketball team in 1977 and through it had met All in the Family actress Sally Struthers. They loved the game and had a big one on Saturday, February 25th, 1978. Many of the boys had laid out their basketball clothes ahead of time, matching shirts that said Gateway Gators and a varying assortment of gym shorts. Ted Weir asked his mother to wash his new white sneakers. He had scuffed them up a little, trying them out. Gary Mathias was incessant, relentlessly pestering his mother to make sure he didn't oversleep on Saturday. Perhaps it was inspiration that led Tim, Jack, Jackie, Bill, and Gary to Chico to watch their favorite team, UC Davis take on Chico State. All of their parents were hesitant. Some pressed them not to go, mostly due to the long drive before them, but all five of them piled into Jack Madruga's turquoise and white 1967 Mercury Montego and drove 50 miles north to Chico. Pooled together, they had $107 amongst them. Jack Madruga had part of an unemployment check. Gary Mathias received disability pay from the Army and from working with his stepfather, while the others received weekly allowances. All of them were largely independent and had gone places together before. On Thursday of that week, Jackie, Tim, Bill, and Jack had gone to Sacramento for a good time. The four were practically inseparable. They did everything together. Years later, their families would remark that Gary Mathias was an outsider. Some were unsure of Gary's reasons for participating in Gateway Project events to begin with. Indeed, there is a lot of mystery surrounding this young man, but I don't want to paint him as the culprit. That will, ultimately, be your choice in the end, but it's important to take note of his past at this juncture. We know that they made it to the game that night. Bill Lee, the executive editor of the Chico Enterprise Record, later stated that he saw all five men sitting with the modest crowd rooting for UC Davis. They were having a great time. We know that they stopped off at Bear's Market around 10 p.m. Mary Davis, the clerk that night, was slightly annoyed as she was trying to close up. Before leaving, they purchased a Hostess cherry pie, a Langendorf lemon pie, A Snickers bar, a Marathon bar, two Pepsis, and a quart and a half of milk. According to Davis, they were all in high spirits, having a good time. They should have been home by midnight. Imogene Weir woke at 5 a.m. that morning in a state of fear. She wasn't sure why. There was a stillness in the house as she walked into Ted's room to find his bed empty. In fact, many of their parents said this. She immediately phoned Bill Sterling's mother, Juanita, who had been up since 2 a.m., and said that Bill hadn't come home either. One phone call led to another. Imogene's daughter-in-law walked a short distance down the street to the Matthias residence. All reported that none of the boys had come home. At 8 p.m. that night, Jack Madruga's mother phoned the police. The next few days were torture for the family. The police were on the lookout for Madruga's Montego, but no active searches were being conducted. It wasn't until Tuesday, February 28th, that the first alerts went out to the media. Mary Davis, who had been working at Bears Market, came forward that day, and later that afternoon... Willard Burris, an employee with the U.S. Forest Service, walked up on Madruga's car. It was stuck on the old Stagecoach Road at the snow line in the Plumas National Forest, 70 miles from Chico. He had first spotted it on the 25th, but didn't think anything of it because of its location near a popular hiking trail. It was also a popular destination for snowmobilers. The car was stuck. The tires spun when authorities hot-wired the vehicle, but was easily pushed out of the snow line. The interior of the car was littered with the items from Bear's Market. The only food item that wasn't fully consumed was the Marathon Bar, which was only half-eaten. Among the pieces of litter were programs from the game, and Bill Sterling's maps, which were folded neatly in the glove compartment. Investigators noted how this heavy car with five men inside was expertly maneuvered up the road at night. Jack Madruga was protective of his car and wouldn't let anyone else drive it. Jack was also weary of rough roads. He had refused to bring Jackie Hewitt home one day because the roads were in rough shape. The only other member of the five that had a license was Gary Mathias, It wasn't until Wednesday, March 1st, that a formal search began. A ground party and California Highway Patrol helicopter ascended to the rough mountain road in the surrounding woods. At all points, bulletin was issued by police in the Brownsville area. On Saturday, March 4th, after Mary's Country Store owner, Mr. Carol Waltz, claimed to have seen Jackie Hewitt and Gary Mathias in the store on both Saturday and Sunday, He claimed that they purchased burritos, chocolate milk, and a soda. A female customer identified Ted Weir and Bill Sterling in the parking lot, and Jackie Hewitt and Jack Madruga standing near a phone booth. They were allegedly driving a red Chevy pickup truck. Mary's Country Store was located about an hour away from where the car was ultimately found in Brownsville. More than 50 deputies from three counties were searching. They searched nearby campgrounds, and one of the family members had called in a psychic named Gloria Daniel of the Church of Zadi. She gave them additional areas to search, but Under-Sheriff Jack Beecham claimed that she wasn't really much help. The families had set up a reward fund for information that would lead them to their boys. They had amassed $1,215 by this time. The next day, search efforts were suspended due to inclement weather. This would be a habitual problem for search teams. But by Tuesday, March 7th, they had expanded their search efforts to four counties and had established a special task force to continue the search. In the Tuesday, March 7th edition of the Sacramento Bee, they alluded to a potential witness that had seen the boys on the night of february twenty fourth when they went missing, and in the Friday edition of The Washington Post, the witness was named Joseph Shones was fifty-five years old and had driven his car up the mountain road sometime after five thirty p m that evening. He wanted to check on the snow line and his cabin, hoping to bring his wife and daughter up the Sierra Nevadas for a bit of camping that weekend. When he returned to his car at around 11 p.m., he found that it was stuck. In the process of pushing the car out, he suffered a heart attack and decided to lay in his car with the engine running and the heat on, hoping someone would come by for help. At this point, Shones' story kind of deviates a bit. According to the March 10th edition of the Los Angeles Times, at 11.30 p.m., Shones heard a vehicle coming up the road. He could see two sets of headlights. He allegedly exited his vehicle and called to the men, parked 20 feet behind him, and claimed that they got in their vehicle and drove away. According to Cynthia Gorney's WAPO article, Shones first heard a whistling noise from down the road a little ways. He then claimed to see a group of men with a woman carrying a baby, walking in the glare of a vehicle's headlights. He could hear voices talking, But when he yelled out for help, the headlights went out, and the voices ceased talking. Shones then laid back down in his car and fell asleep. A couple hours later, he saw what looked like flashlight beams outside the car windows. He called out to whomever may have been wielding them. But when he did, the lights went off, and they walked away. Shones laid in the vehicle until it ran out of gas at which point he walked eight miles back down the mountain to the Mountain House Lodge, where he was able to call for an ambulance. On the way down, he passed by the Mercury Montego and even touched it. He was known to have a drink or two at this particular watering hole. It was later confirmed that Shones did indeed suffer a mild heart attack. In the same article... Imogene Weir believed that her son would have gone to Shone's calls for help. She notes how her son and Bill Sterling once helped a man get to the hospital who had overdosed on Valium. Gary's stepfather, Edward Clough, stated that, quote, Gary must take medication twice a day, three pills in the morning and three at night for schizophrenia. If he had no medicine for two weeks, he would be in very poor condition, talking to himself and the like. Foul play was suspected by everyone involved at this point. Imogene Weir believed that the boys were being held prisoner in Forbestown, a town described by its postmaster as a haven for young people to drop out of society. Gary Mathias had a friend that lived in Forbestown, but when they spoke to him, claimed that he hadn't talked to Mathias in over a year. Edward Clough stated that Gary would have visited him if he were in the area. The police were following a number of leads at this point, some more promising than others. People claimed to see the boys everywhere, and one man claimed that they had been lured away by Sun Myung Moon, the founder of the Unification Church, an offshoot of Christianity, well known for its wedding ceremonies and unique funerals. In 1978, many viewed the church as a dangerous cult, and for one tipster, a coat rack to hang the disappearances of the five men on. Search efforts would continue to be hampered by heavy snowstorms that would blow through the area. On March 19th, searchers discovered gold-colored cloth tied to a number of trees. The first piece of linen was found 1.2 miles from the car's location, and it was presumed to be from the lining of one of the boys' jackets. Four more pieces of cloth were discovered and seemed to be marking a trail toward a set of cabins, By this time, the mountain had been covered by six feet of snow, requiring snowmobiles and other heavy equipment to get up there. The reward fund had grown to $5,000, and the search efforts continued. On April 1st, the weather backed off enough for a four-man team to search the Soapstone Hill Canyon, but ultimately found nothing. They were following a set of footprints that were found one month after the boys disappeared. Most of the search had centered around the Bucks Lake area, the most promising lead coming on May 12th, when search dogs picked up on a human scent. Unfortunately, 14-foot snowdrifts hampered search efforts, and two days later the Sheriff's Department put a halt to all search efforts until the snow thawed. Toward the end of May, searchers detected a foul odor near Soapstone Canyon, near a tree. In a May 24th article, Undersheriff Jack Beecham alluded to a witness that was being asked to take a polygraph test to clear up their part of the story. It's unclear if he's referring to Joseph Shones or maybe Gary Mathias' friends in the Forbestown area. Quote, If they're up there, Beecham stated, they were forced. If their bodies are found, there will be foul play involved. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back... We'll get into the grisly conclusion to this episode. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Cults Uncovered, and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Using investigative research combined with primary audio, including 911 calls, interviews, and trial testimony, Morbidology takes a look at some of the world's most heinous murders. Do you know why you're here? A, uh, gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology now on Apple, Spreaker, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get podcasts. Hey, it's Spencer hey I'm Ryan from the what if podcast we are indeed and we every week talk about all kinds of weird shit like cryptids and UFOs and aliens yeah we ask a hypothetical question and uh, make jokes about ourselves and all the world of weirdness uh, every week on Tuesdays yeah so if you like some of the stuff that Rob talks about here on our strange skies you might want to check us out at what if or on iTunes stitcher all that stuff love you Rob <laughs> bye Rob Miss you. Bye, Rob. On June 4th, the body of Ted Weir was found inside of a Forest Service trailer at the Daniel Zink campground. The campground is approximately five miles from Elk's Retreat, where the car was found abandoned. From where their footprints were last seen, it's unclear how far away the trailer was. In a July 6, 1978 Washington Post article, it stated that the Forest Service trailer was a 19.4 mile walk. But judging by the maps of where the car was found and where the bodies were discovered, more like 7 miles or so. A small group of motorcyclists had pulled off the Oroville-Quincy Highway to rest for a bit. At the end of the road at the Daniel Zink campground sat a Forest Service trailer with a busted-out window. A deathly stench wafted out, and the motorcycle men called the police immediately. Ted's body was fully clothed. His leather shoes had been swapped out for Gary Mathias' tennis shoes. Judging from the beard growth on his face and the amount of weight he lost, which was about 80 pounds, it's believed that Ted survived for 8 to 13 weeks in the trailer. There were a number of consumed sea ration containers found inside and around the trailer itself, taken from a locker that had been broken into. There was enough to last all five of the men for a year straight, and there was also a never-lit propane heater inside. There were eight sheets laid out on Ted Weir's body. It resembled a death shroud, as if he were about to be mummified. His feet were severely frostbitten to the point of gangrene and blood poisoning. Along with the propane stove, there were many flammable objects in the trailer, from paperback books to furniture. that could have been used to make a fire, and yet all were intact. A gold watch missing its quartz crystal lay next to Ted's body. It's unclear whose watch it was, perhaps a forest stranger but no one ever came forward to claim ownership. Jack Madruga and William Sterling's bodies were found three and a half miles away from the trailer a day later. They were led to their bodies by a number of blankets and a rusty flashlight found on the road that most likely came from the Forest Service trailer. Jack's body was found in a badly decomposed state, lying face up in a stream. He was clutching his watch in his hands while Bill Sterling's remains were found scattered on the other side of the same road down an embankment. His body was scavenged by animals that spread his bones across an area 50 feet long. This is from the Sacramento Bee on Wednesday, June 14th. Sterling's skull was 50 yards from the main part of his body. Madruga's right arm had been bitten off. He lay on his side, gripping a watch in his left hand. Forcino found Sterling's body 15 feet off the road. The young man's father, William Sr., was the second person on the scene. How do you know it's him? he asked. Sir, we found the wallet, said Forcino. It has the pictures of Sterling's 20-year-old twin sisters and the social security number. The father broke down and began sobbing. Two days later, Jackie Hewitt's body was found by his father. Lieutenant Lance Ayers tried to talk him out of it, but he insisted. He needed closure. Jackie's remains were found about a mile northeast of the trailer. They were later identified through dental records, but the first bone discovered was the spine. Jack Hewitt picked it up and began to weep uncontrollably. Investigators determined that Jackie and Gary most likely made it to the trailer with Ted. Lieutenant Kenneth Mickelson, the search coordinator for Butte County, stated... Quote, judging by the amount of food eaten, you could conclude that all three of them, Weir, Matthias, and Hewitt, were at that trailer for a while, then the other two left. It's unclear what made Jackie and Gary, whose body has never been found, leave the trailer. Perhaps Jackie ran out after his friend, Ted, had died. Maybe he was bringing the blankets out to his friend's. There was also a plastic lighter found at the snow line. It's unclear whether it belonged to any of the men. If it did, it was most likely Gary's, as he was the only smoker among them. By June 9th, law enforcement officials had moved away from foul play as a determining factor in the case. They now believed that the men missed a turn on the way to Forbstown, at Gary's insistence, became confused, and walked to their deaths. An article from the Sacramento Bee on June 9th stated, "Judging from where the bodies were found, the officers believe the men set out up the road on foot from their stuck car. Then found their way onto the paved road where Sterling and Madruga died. The remaining three then continued on toward the trailer, with Hewitt possibly dying just short of refuge. Matthias and Weir, the latter wearing tennis shoes and losing five toes to frostbite." Then holed up in the trailer where Weir died. Judging from a trail of blankets, flashlight, and a lighter, the officers believe Matthias had sometimes set out on up the same road which they had traveled to the trailer. The search for Gary Matthias continued well into June. There were two search teams in the woods in June. One searching for Gary, and the other was searching for three-year-old Julie Southard, who had gone missing on June 3rd, 12 miles west of Lake Shasta. The search for both of them was called off later that month. Like Gary, Julie's body was never found. As the tragic pieces of the group's losing battle for survival in the mountains 52 miles east of Oroville and about 20 miles west of Quincy is unraveled, it has become apparent that their suffering defied description. The five, all of whom lived happy, insulated lives with their families in the Marysville-Yuba City area, deviated from their normally set pattern of outings only once the night they turned off the freeway drove past Lake Oroville, and up a mountain road until the pavement ended, then followed a dirt track until their vehicle mired down some 200 yards into the snow line. Thus begins an article in the Wednesday, June Fourteenth, 1978 edition of the Sacramento Bee. There are so many questions in this case that defy an answer. What made this group of men go up a mountain they were unfamiliar with in the pitch black to their deaths? Several of the boys were fearful of the dark. Ted Weir and Bill Sterling both hated the cold. Jack Madruger would never drive his car in an unfamiliar area in the dark. He loved that car, and as mentioned before, had once refused to bring Jackie Hewitt home because the road to his house was in such bad shape. There is also the matter of Joseph Shones, who claimed to see the boys on the mountain that night. Aside from the fact that he suffered a heart attack, given what we know about the items the boys purchased from Bear's Market, it's safe to say that Joseph Shones didn't see them on the mountain at 11.30 that night. A quick Google search reveals that it takes nearly two and a half hours to get to the spot where the car was abandoned from Bear's Market. It's still possible that he did see them a couple hours later, when he claimed to see lights shining in through his car windows. It's also safe to assume that Joseph Shones passed by the car on the way down the mountain the next day. I have similar doubts about Carol Watt's testimony. I do not believe the boys stopped at Mary's Country Store on Saturday and Sunday. It just makes no sense, and perhaps Shones read about the red pickup truck from Carol Watt's testimony, making him believe he had seen a pickup truck on the mountain that night those are the only two places that mention of a pickup truck come from. There are only two options in this case. Either the boys were let up there, or they missed a turn on the way home. Perhaps they weren't thinking straight when they walked on the freshly groomed snow into the woods. And maybe Gary Mathias was responsible. Given his past record, you can't rule that idea out. But even then... There are still too many questions left, allowing this mystery to endure. Lieutenant Lance Ayers, who was involved in the search for the men, became consumed by the case. He had attended Marysville High School with Ted Weir and his brother Dallas. He didn't know them well, but then there are a few cases as strange as this one. Ayers often dreamed of the boys at night. During one particular dream... He could see them. They were all there. He stretched out his arms and he almost embraced them before he woke up. Interest in this case died down quickly after the bodies were discovered. Perhaps it was the angle that law enforcement presented of five boys confused about where they were, with maps in the glove box, that set out into the wilderness and died. There is one strange adjoining mystery to this case. Three weeks after the boys disappeared, a woman named Debbie Lynn Reese from Yuba City received a number of phone calls from an anonymous man. Reese had no known connection to any of the boys, but when she picked up the phone, the voice on the other end said, I know where the five missing men are, and then hung up the phone. He called back the next day, stating, I need your help, because I really hurt those guys bad. Debbie Reese asked the man who he hurt. He responded, Don't play dumb with me, and promptly hung up the phone. A final call was placed on March 17th. The voice on the other end said, Those five guys are all dead. Debbie repeated his words back to him, and before he hung up for the last time, he said, They're all dead. This episode was written and researched by me, with script editing from Brian Hasty. Thank you so much for listening. This was not an easy one to get through, uh, but it's a case that has intrigued me for a long time and I just kind of wanted to cover it. So thank you if you made it this far and you listened to this whole thing. Uh, I don't blame you if you stopped. I know you're here for the UFO content, but uh, just wanted to try something different. Special shout out to Benji Eggle for his illuminating two-part article on this case I attempted to get an interview with him, but due to the coverage COVID-19 has been getting at the Sacramento Bee, we just weren't able to make it happen. But uh, you should definitely check out his articles, which will be in the show notes. Uh, they are very illuminating and probably the only place to find really new information up until um, I went through and like clipped all these articles from newspapers.com. A special thanks to Spencer and Ryan of the What If Podcast for allowing me to use a portion of their episode about this case at the beginning uh, of my episode. It's truly been one of those... It was one of those episodes that's a landmark for me. It's one that I tell everybody to go check out because it it, it came out right around the time that this mystery was first put on Reddit, which is where it blew up about three years ago. So, um I will put a link to their episode in the show notes. And a huge thanks to the great Desdemona for creating the map that is available in the show notes for this episode. I'm gonna be putting it on social media too. Like the map that we all have that we've been using for years, uh, with this case is like it's very blurry. It's not complete. It's not clear where the road goes from like Ouroville to Brownsville and stuff but uh, she did a bang up job on it and uh, special thanks to her for that. While you won't find a lot of the sources I used for this episode in the show notes because they're largely composed of 30 plus newspaper clippings from newspapers.com but I will make them available to anyone that wants them through a zip file and if I can find a way to put them on the website it will. I was and am going to be On a few more podcasts, uh, including the Perhaps It's You podcast, Oh No Lit Class, and I'm on an upcoming episode of Hysteria 51. I hope you all check out those episodes and those podcasts. They're some of my favorite podcasts and podcasters, and you should definitely give them a listen. Brent and John make me laugh every week, as does Megan and RJ, and uh, Samantha and Liz. They're all great. They all make me laugh. uh, they're, They're just great. Go listen to their podcasts. If you want more information about this podcast, head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com where you can find links to show notes, social media profiles, merchandise, and our Patreon page. And speaking of our Patreon page, through your donations and merch purchases, through your donations and merch purchases, we were able to donate $250 to the Native American Community Response Fund set up by Edgar Villanova, to provide emergency funds to native american communities hit hard by COVID 19 thank you all so much for uh continuing to pledge your support on patreon uh you all made this happen and thank you to those that are continuing to uh, pledge their support and the new patreon supporters just thank you so fucking much you all are amazing There is a bunch of new content up on the Patreon page now, including a short bonus episode with Scott and Forrest of Astonishing Legends discussing the new revelations about the DoD's release of the three videos linked to the New York Times article from December 2017 and TTSA. So if you're interested in that, we had about a 45-minute conversation, and that's available for all patrons. And for $5 patrons, there is a bonus episode I did with my buddy Brian Hasty where we reviewed Fire in the Sky. So go check that out at patreon.com slash Skies. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. And our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. Hope you all are hanging in there, and I hope you all have a good night.